Welcome all, uh, Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today we're joined by Tom Alcorn, uh, software engineer, backend software engineer at Flux.io in San Francisco. Uh, do you mind sharing for our audience what you do there and what Flux does as a business? Yeah, totally. Um, so like Max said, I'm a backend engineer at Flux.io. Uh, mostly I work on backend services, so um, you know, writing services and APIs that enable uh, our front-end teams to like offer new uh, platforms and apps to our customers. Um, the actual company itself is uh, focused on architecture and construction users and provides kind of like data services for that field. Um, so construction and architecture has really large data problems. Building models just as just one sort of like segment of that problem it can be like these huge files that have to get shared between huge teams of people at like construction firms. Um, so that's kind of the try that the the problem space that we're trying to address and specifically um we kind of we one of the things we can do is like take your geometry um from whatever like cad tool you're using and provide it to any other cad tool that you're using um, got it cad being computer curated design, design yeah or computer right assisted on. design i guess depending on right on yeah. well it would be probably helpful for our audience to know how we know each other yep uh we met <laughs> On the job, uh, working for the same employer in Boston, a startup called Everquote, or now called Everquote. Yep, previously uh, Adamonics. <laughs> previously Adamonics. <laughs> they don't want us to say that, though. So. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so um, that was your first job out of college. You mm -hmm. went to MIT, and you, like many, or by and large, most of the guests I've had on did not major in computer science. So mm -hmm. uh, for our audience that has a similar background to you and not having gotten a computer science degree... Uh, how did you get that first job that was involving programming and whatnot? Yeah, just pure luck, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> For real? Uh, so the first like line of code I ever wrote was in freshman year at college. Um, so you know, I'm not like the kind of person who was coding since I was like a kid or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I took a Python course um, freshman year. I didn't really touch, um, you know. I touch software obviously all the time. Everyone uses software all the time, but I didn't like write any software myself until senior year when I decided um, to take some computer science courses right at the end of my degree to try and have something to be able to like go to an employer and say, hey, I can actually do like a, a job that involves some amount of coding. Um, so I was a mathematics and physics major in undergrad. Um, I studied, you know, <laughs> like a lot of solving equations by hand, that kind of thing, like not that much software. The closest thing I would say is writing lots of MATLAB scripts to analyze data with, For sure. which is a very handy skill and actually like not totally unrelated to what I ended up doing at Everquote. Um, but yeah, not at all like a production level software engineering type of uh, of skill set uh, at that point. So, what was the kind of crossover? You mentioned learning MATLAB in yeah. undergrad, but what was kind of the crossover? from your math and physics classes to that first job out of school? Um, what do you mean by crossover? Were there things like MATLAB that your undergrad education gave you that uh, you actually managed to use on the job? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess so. Maybe not directly. Uh, like, like I said, you know, mathematics and physics classes. I guess the fundamentals in mathematics and physics are, are applicable in a lot of different fields. Um, so, you know, at Evercoid, I was doing that kind of like data analytics slash like data pipeline building role. Um, so, you know, learning like the basic 
um, the fundamentals of like mathematical inquiry into a problem is was helpful in that regard, I would say. But, um, you know, I think like the, the small amount of Python that I picked up while in college was was helpful as well. Like that was the main language that uh, we used there. That, that, would, that would be it, I would say, though. Were there, so it sounds like there were some hard skills that you obtained as soon as you started that first job yeah. uh, for doing stuff like back-end engineering, data pipelines. Yeah, definitely. What were they? Um, I think, like, first of all, just, you know, taking, like, programming and software engineering to the next level from, like, writing scripts that do data analysis and basic little, you know, uh, like, intro class level stuff to, oh, this thing actually has to run uh, and not mess up constantly and you know <laughs> sure. we're going to be depending on this and uh not only that it has to sort of like interact with multiple other systems all at once um so i think i guess it's a kind of generalized idea of like dependency management and, and knowing what this piece of software that you're writing is what kind of environment it's going to be in i think one thing about scripting right is you know what environment it's going to be running in like you're going to you know run it on your own machine probably like hit a button you know the files are all going to be there and it's going to do something like that's a typical data analysis kind of workflow. At least it was for me when I was, you know, doing experiments in undergrad, but in a production environment, like, you know, your script's going to be running on some machine that you're not like directly logged onto, right? Like it's, you know, somewhere in the cloud or something, and it's going to be talking to these other services um, all over the place. And they're also like, you don't really know where they are, or what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot more, you have to do a lot more thinking about the environment that code is going to be executing in. Um, so what what were some of the steeper learning curves in that first job when it came to uh, knowing the environment your code would run in? Yeah, um, probably like one thing that I really feel like I suffered from was not having a clear mental model of like how a modern computer works kind of from the ground up. Um, and I don't think you need to have a perfect, like complete understanding of a computer to be a good software engineer but i think like understanding a lot of the basic things about like what an os is like what a kernel is what uh like what is the networking stack doing um like just having some basic kind of mental models of what's going on there can help you a lot and a a lot of that stuff bit me multiple times before i had the realization that oh i'm actually running to the same problem over and over here i should actually just like do some research now read about this you know go on wikipedia like Start somewhere. Sounds like there's some specific anecdotes. Are there any specific ones that you can give us about how you had a problem in your first job out of school that arose from not being familiar with how modern operating systems work? Um, interesting. I can't really think of any totally off the top of my head. Sure. But I, I have like the emotional memory of, <laughs> of like, For sure. I feel like every software engineer has had this, oh, yeah. just like banging their head against a thing. Like, why won't this work? Why is it not doing what I expect that it's supposed to be doing? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I can relate to that experience for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, uh, if you can't, then like, you know, yeah. it's, um, yeah, it's ubiquitous. Everyone's had this moment from, like, you know, Linus Torvalds, like, you know, amazing software engineers all the way down to, like, total beginners. It's it's a universal yeah, thing. Yeah, there's... As you start programming for the first time in a, in a job role, there's... You're, you're always working with abstractions where there's details below the surface of what you're doing, like yeah. you're describing, uh, what the operating system or kernel is doing, 
And you might not know exactly. You don't even might not know the tools for observing what is happening beneath yeah. your layer of abstraction. That's a really great, yeah, and great point. It's like you said, looking or going to Wikipedia and <laughs> reading yeah. about this stuff is like populating your your cache, so you don't have to look another time. So yeah. there's a constant trade off in your first job about whether you should just keep chugging and trying to oh, beat yeah. the abstraction <laughs> into submission or should I go spend God knows how much time, maybe a full yeah. day, uh, a full work day, yeah. reading Wikipedia article and all of its links. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, on that topic about uh, learning this stuff on the job, uh, what were some of the resources you used to self-teach um, coming from math and physics background and doing a little bit of MATLAB and Python in undergrad, how did you, how did you get up to speed so quickly? Like, was it, was there a real safety net for you in that first job to educate you about the the skills that the employer needed or? Um, I think like the people around me in the work environment definitely had a lot of good pointers. Like one great thing about, um, about that job was that people were super open and receptive to questions and like willing to to explain things to a like relatively fresh like green kind of um, employee, so so that was definitely great, um, and yeah, kind of absorbing almost by osmosis. Like what people are saying about things also helps a little bit. Like you might not even realize you know that it's happening, but slowly you pick up like words and concepts just from the way people are using them, mm-hmm. um, which can help link together things that you've seen while you're actually working. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was definitely really good. Uh, YouTube videos like there's tons of them you know I, I can't even really name channels or anything like that because I feel like I've just so many times I've gone to YouTube and like what is this thing that I just learned like this word that I just learned exists like what is what is that yeah um and then you know click through a couple of different videos and try and get a sketch of what you know what it is um Wikipedia obviously is a great resource <laughs> Stack Overflow is a great resource um another good thing to do is sometimes to just kind of like um a website like Quora is reasonably good for this, of just trying to, of looking for a kind of slightly more general question, like, you know, how do modern uh, compilers do optimization or something? And it's it's not like a super, you're not looking for one fact, you're looking for kind of a set of answers that are um, a little broader and more open-ended, but that can be an interesting way to find new niches of knowledge that can help you sometimes. This is a very common refrain so far in interviews we've done is guests mentioning how uh, being on the job and having the job inherently exposes you to coworkers who are invested in you succeeding. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So like you were describing osmosis or coworkers actively educating you up on job skills that are really valuable. Yeah. Uh, just getting that first job is really key to being in a feedback loop where your coworkers will uh, help you overcome educational hurdles you might encounter, but mm-hmm. also uh, cue you towards uh, what topics are really important to be working on and learning how to be good at, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, since you moved out to San Francisco from Boston, have you been at Flux this whole time? Uh, yeah, the whole time I've been in San Francisco, basically. What What are kind of the skills differences that you see in working at Flux versus having worked at the at Everquote, the startup in Boston? Um, yeah, it's so when I when I first started at Flux, I wasn't a backend software engineer. <laughs> I was a, uh, I guess like an app engineer is what I would call it. You know, so working on various uh, 
uh, projects closer to the front end, um, including like actually making apps or web apps, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, but also making like tools to support people making web apps. So kind of that area of things, but um, slowly over time, I've kind of transitioned a little bit into now being uh, like essentially working full time on backend services and stuff. So um, that's been an interesting transition. First of all, it was kind of an in interesting transition being on the, you know, going into being a kind of app engineer, having been a data analyst type of role um, at Everquote, uh, because I'd only just really learned like web development skills, you know, so um, there was a lot of groundwork to cover there as well, <laughs> you know, fresh off of having learned to cover a bunch of ground just to get into the first job. Am I getting specific? Like what, what application development yeah, uh, so, skills did you have to learn when you came to Flux? Um, so I think there were two really big ones. Like one was learning the quirks of browsers. They're just really odd kind of pieces of software <laughs> and you have to work around their quirks a lot. Um, I don't love doing that. I wouldn't say it's like my, my true calling is to like make web apps because a lot of the time I think like, why did we make browsers this way? They're so arbitrary and weird. Like, you know, what's, yeah. what's the deal? Um, but you know, that was definitely a thing. There was a lot to learn there, uh, in terms of make like, I think you can, you know, anyone can throw up a website that's, it's, uh, intentionally meant to be a kind of like low, but entry, but to, to sort of productionize things and make them, you know, to do a professional job on, on making a web app. I feel like there's a lot of knowledge actually that you need to have. Um, to ensure that your browser is going to be interacting with your server properly and like securely and um, you know efficiently and uh, do you mind getting specific like what what specifically were you really surprised by in working on the app side of things probably the most surprising thing was how much of a hodgepodge security is in browsers mm. and it's gotten a lot better in recent years I mean like I'm glad I wasn't working on this kind of stuff in like 2007 or something because it was even more of a chaotic mess then. Um, but there are, there are, there are a lot of things that feel like duct taped on, you know, afterwards as an afterthought of like, Oh, this is actually a security hole and we're going to add this new feature to the browser to patch this security hole. Dang, um, what, what are you, what were you guys building app wise? That was uh, so security rot. That's the thing. We're not even trying to build something. I mean, obviously we, you know, like, these are the, our clients are construction and architecture firms, so the data is kind of sensitive. Like they don't want just building blueprints. Not kind of sensitive. It is like they don't want building <laughs> blueprints just going out to anyone in the world, right? Yeah. Um, so they need to have a secure platform, but that's true of most industries, I think. Like you know, people care about their data not being exposed to the entire internet. Um, so you know, we, we weren't trying to do anything particularly special, but um, if you want to prevent someone from you know doing a clickjacking attack where um, they can you know, show a kind of fraudulent page to your user and then the user clicks on something and suddenly it's sent like the credentials through to your service uh, and then like taking some action on behalf of the user without them realizing it. Um, if you want to prevent that kind of thing, you have to do one kind of mitigation. Um, uh, there's, there's like another kind of mitigation for like, you know, evil websites uh, using resources from your page to make uh, make legit looking, you know, evil websites that trick users and stuff like that. Um, you know, then there's all kinds of ways of like, how, how do you secure cookies? Like there's a lot of ways to do it wrong. As it turns out, um, there are a lot of ways to do like authentication wrong. There are a lot of ways to, um, to do like data security 
wrong and so so were were these uh, realizations about the security side of things things that your coworkers were pointing out to you about your the software you were developing or were they things that you were discovering yourself uh, mostly coworkers pointing it out yeah mm-hmm. it was mostly that like we had already committed to doing a certain set of security uh, things and so then the actual process of implementing those things turned out you know in some cases to be like tricky that there, there was some amount of learning to be done about like why do browsers do it this way what is what exactly is going on here and why was that the decision made mm-hmm. um so fair enough yeah. so yeah that was one you know it's not uh again i don't feel like it's fundamental knowledge about computer science which is the stuff that really kind of gets me going it's more just like dealing with a, a platform that has its own quirks and everything like any platform does but yeah. um it's definitely a it can get you know, it's a, it's a broad topic, I would say. There's a lot to learn there. And not all of it is super well-connected or well-integrated. Um, for it? sure, yeah. for sure. Well, it sounds like you went from being a back-end engineer at Everquote to being more full-stack and touching mm-hmm. the front-end a fair amount. Uh, based on the security stuff you're describing, all of that sounds, well, A, it sounds really rough. <laughs> but B, it sounds like uh, dealing with browsers is a massive headache. And, oh, uh, totally, yeah. Would you recommend for people who are starting their careers, maybe haven't gotten their first job or are at their first jobs, uh, to forego trying to work on the front end side of things? Not at all, yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't say like, you know, forego it. I mean, every platform is going to have its quirks no matter what you're developing for. And at some point, you probably want humans to interact with your software. Maybe not if you're just writing like <laughs> stock trading software or something. Sure. But um, if, it, if you're going to have you know, your software be used by people, then you're going to be developing for a platform that involves interacting with humans and that is going to have quirks for sure. And it's because humans are weird or maybe computers are weird depending on your perspective. But, um, yeah. What are, what are you hoping to work on in the next five, ten years? In uh, Presumably as a software engineer or do you see yourself moving into a different type of role with relation to your career? Um, yeah, I, I see myself doing, you know, doing software for the foreseeable future. Um, I recently took a class on compilers, uh, which really interested me. Um, so I, you know, I'm trying to, you know, explore that further, get deeper into that. I would like to, at some point soon, you know, think about designing language, uh, and what that would, what so that would involve. So for our audience that doesn't know what a compiler is, do mm-hmm. you mind breaking down for our audience? What is, what is the compiler and why is yeah, it important sure. to software engineering? Yeah, so I guess um, you can think of compiler a compiler as kind of Google Translate for software languages. Um, so, it, you know, it takes language A and turns it into language B um, and hopefully preserves all the meaning correctly. You know, we all know Google Translate isn't perfect, right? So um, there's always quirks there and that's where it gets messy. But the basic idea is... Is yeah, you have language A, which is typically in a in our world uh, is something that humans are going to be writing. So it's Java or, or C plus plus or something. You know, something that's hopefully got good enough abstractions and and kind of clean enough syntax and everything that a human is going to be happy writing it. Um, and you know, happy is again subjective, right? But so I know this is a <laughs> fucking landmine of a topic. Yeah. But what, in your opinion, are good language features like how? What makes a, a programming language to you more human-friendly? Uh, that is a huge landmine of a topic, and it's 
I don't know, I'm going to give you a straight-up engineering <laughs> answer and say you're looking at a bunch of trade-offs there, right? For sure. Um, so there's a couple of big trade-offs. I should say, first of all, back to the, just quickly to reiterate a compi- what a compiler is. So language A is going to be something human, uh, writable and readable. More importantly, readable, I think, is the kind of consensus these days that we do a lot more reading of software than writing. Um, and so it should be something that you can read and understand what it's going to do. And then language B is... Ideally, something that a machine can execute, or if not, then something that can easily be translated by another compiler into something a machine can execute. Um, when I say a machine can execute, I mean this is like bytecode that you like tell you give it to your CPU and it and it runs it, um, or bytecode that you give to a virtual machine, which is kind of like a fake CPU, okay, <laughs> a okay. virtual CPU. So, uh, what makes code more human readable? Yeah. So, um, so like with any. Human inter- human computer interface HCI is the cool word, but you know user interface basically a programming language is a user interface for programmers. Um, the the key thing is information hiding, like you know uh, not showing too much at once because we model humans can only hold so much information in our heads at once, and um, there's it seems like there's kind of a hard limit to that like unless you're a genius or something that you know you can hold a shopping list worth of things in your head at once um, arguably geniuses are inefficient in that they're trying to hold more or they're capable of holding more in their brain than they necessarily might need to yeah maybe maybe they're doing it wrong I don't know basically I'm saying geniuses suck yeah <laughs> yeah geniuses suck yeah we don't need those geniuses <laughs> at all we just need we need languages that are dumb, dummy friendly yeah. Well, we got him. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Python, um, yeah. yeah. Python's not. No, no, no. Well, actually, you know, dummy Python. friendly. I don't know. I would say Python is just friendly. <laughs> agreed, agreed. Yeah. So, all bite. I'll, I'll weigh in on yeah, sure. something programming language wise that specifically Python I love is the white space. Okay. Uh, I think one of the great aspects of white space being, and by white space, I mean tabs and spaces that help indent your code so you can see the flow of where uh, your software mm-hmm. is going uh, line by line, is that by requiring indentation of code uh, as a property of the language, you basically get punished if you indent your code too much. And as a human, reading heavily indented code is very hard to interpret because uh, you might have uh, conditionals like if else, you might have loops like for loops uh, or while loops. Mm-hmm. And the more indented your code is, uh, the more the less human readable it is. So one aspect of Python's white space as a property of language is that it punishes bad programmers <laughs> and yeah. it enforces, it pen- penalizes you for heavily indenting code. And while you you can style-wise enforce uh, indentation and white space in the same way for other languages like Java, C-sharp, JavaScript, um, Erlang, Ada, whatever, every language, uh, Python, it's a, it's a built-in property of language. And I think that's a, that makes it a very attractive first language for people to learn. Uh, or for companies to adopt as their, you know, application layer programming language. But 
Yeah. That's my super heavy duty opinion. You jumped right on the minefield there. I feel like that's. I don't think it's even that con- uh, controversial. controversial. Yeah. Ooh, I don't know. I feel like there's yeah. a lot of people who really hate the white space. I'm not. Dude. I'm not saying I hate yeah. it. I don't really mind it either way or whatever. But you know, right. I've definitely met people who just despise the white space thing. Okay. I think because the way they see it, these are usually people who are happier writing C plus plus or something. Because the way they see it, they're like, I don't want the you know the language to tell me how to style my code. I want to style it however I want to style it. <laughs> You know, it should all be able to run in one line if I want that way. But, okay. Usually, but I, think that, I don't like working with those. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, they can be hard to work with, yeah. Sure. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, it, it, it's about taking cognitive load off the programmer. And so, you know, the example you're giving is, like, having the code follow a kind of uniform format, be it whitespace or whatever, you know, whatever kind of syntax, like, the language chooses to help unify the representation of... Of code um, that takes some load off the uh, off the programmer because they just they know what to expect when they see something when they see even a certain shape of code they kind of start to imagine what it's going to be doing um, which is why you see like style guides you know in the JavaScript world right now there's like um, a kind of a hot thing to do is like have a uh, a style guide that's going to like either lint your code and, and like tell you when you're doing things that don't match the style guide or it's going to automatically um, restyle your code for you so that everyone's everyone just writes however they want to write it they run this thing that restyles it and now it looks like the way that it, we all want it to look so that that's actually a topic we've that's come up previously we had a guest on Anantical Carney who's CEO of a crowdsourcing business for software development mm-hmm. where I was asking him about what uh, acceptance tests what criteria do they have in place to as requirements for whether code is good or not. Yeah. And the 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 type of tests that you're describing of linting and yeah. checking whether the code that a human has written conforms to a style guide is of the type of um, test that's called a s- static analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a, a common, uh, uh, I, mean, I guess not metric, but um, static analysis is evaluating code in its human-readable form uh, to determine whether there are errors that can be inferred. Uh, yeah, or even without, potential errors, maybe. Or even hypothetical potential yeah, errors yeah. Uh, that might, uh, might be present without even having to run the code in its machine-readable form. Yep. Um, so is, are there properties of programming languages uh, that uh, make certain programming languages more or less amenable to this type of static analysis where you can get feedback about what a human has written in the programming language without having to run it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. This is like one of the number one kind of, uh, I guess, like design choices to make if you're going to make a programming language is how how much static analysis do you want to do? Um, Generally speaking, the more uh, amenable your language is to static analysis, the more you know, explicit program is going to have to be when they're actually writing things. Mm. Um, so, like, you know, a, t- a language with, like, uh, strong and explicit types like Java or something like that, you know, you know, in, in any given expression or block of code, like, you know whatever, the type of what everything is. And so when someone tries to, like, add an integer to a string, you know, it can either, it can maybe cast it or something fancy, but generally you would just say that's, you know, that's an error. We didn't even have to run that line. We know it's an error. Mm. So, like, you know, fix it. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, that can be a really great property. People also see it as a limitation because um, you have to write more stuff down. 
in the process of making code. Whereas, you know, if you're using Lisp or something or something, you know, some incredibly uh, flexible language, um, you can write shorter programs, you can write, you know, really concise, cool one-liners. You don't have to write as much stuff down, but it's not going to be able to tell you, um, at least unless you develop some really, really hardcore static analysis tools, it's not going to be able to tell you about errors before it runs them, generally speaking. So how did you, if not in your undergraduate degree, get familiar with this topic of programming language design? Uh, this is a topic that comes up a lot on our show is yeah. about how do you learn things beyond a formal education? Yeah, um, so yeah, it's a it's a hugely challenging thing. Um, I would say that very early on, like I said, there was YouTube, there was co coworkers and colleagues. Um, I actually I should have mentioned I, I worked through a textbook um, when I was first at uh, at Mike's as well. The uh, it's it's a it's like a classic text computer science textbook called Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. Sure, so you sure. know plug that one. Um, yeah, and it's, it's freely available. We'll include a link in the show notes. Yeah, it is, it is um, and it's, it's a really good one. Um, there's also, like, um, open course where, which is uh, MIT offering, so, you know, like any software, software, well, not even software engineering, computer science lectures that you want, uh, you can find there. But um, recently I took a course um, from a small, uh, a small, I guess, school, you'd call it, um, called Bradfield Computer Science and or Bradfield CS, I think they call themselves. But um, they basically offer classes for, you know, currently employed, like full-time software engineers, basically. People who are not trying to get into software engineering like the way a, a coding bootcamp might work, but people who are currently working and want to go deeper into various parts of the, the field, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so they offer courses on things like compilers or distributed systems or that kind of thing you know mm -hmm. generally like topics that are they're not really beginner topics they're sort of like you need some groundwork before you um would be able to make sense of a course like that for sure um, but yeah so you know now i'm a couple of years into into this uh this world and so i felt ready to try and take a course like that so i took compilers um we you know we worked from this uh this scary looking textbook called the dragon book which is a notorious uh textbook in some ways, like notorious for being like comprehensive, but also maybe a little hard to pass sometimes, hard to read. But, um, <laughs> I like the pun. <laughs> uh, see, yeah. Um, but actually, I think it's a pretty good textbook and uh, there's enough like supplemental beginner level stuff that you could read online that it's, it's good to have a reference kind of book around like that as well. For sure. For sure. Um, so we, we worked through, you know, from the start of language design all the way down to you know running it on a you know on a machine a vm whatever um so that's all the way from you know like you said uh static analysis um you know lexing parsing um semantic analysis which is like the part of the compiler pipeline where you do type checking and that kind of thing uh then onto you know like bytecode generation um and so we like implemented a vm um to do that and then you know, once you've implemented a VM, you're kind of done, but in a... VM being virtual machine? Virtual machine, yeah, sorry. Um, so that's that's one approach uh, that you can take. Another one would be to, like, directly compile to a real machine target, like, you know, Intel's assembly language or something. Um, but it's a little easier to, to implement a, v a virtual machine in some high-level language that you're comfortable with, because that way you know what's going on inside it, whereas reading through all of, like, 
Intel's assembly documentation can be, <laughs> it's just a whole other thing to learn. So we, yeah, we tried to keep it a little simpler than that. Um, so yeah, that's the, that was like roughly what the course covered, but um, so yeah, it was just very inspiring and, and it introduced me to a lot of, uh, even just terminology that I wasn't totally sure what it meant. Now I feel like I at least know what I, you know, if someone asked me a question like, what, you know, how does this part of a compiler work or something, I would know what to Google now, which is, <laughs> which is a really key skill. That's the first step to... <laughs> oh, it really is, yeah. <laughs> Uh, before we started recording, you yeah. mentioned one of the skills that you uh, discovered that is possible to learn that you hadn't known or been familiar with before taking the compilers course is familiarity, familiarity with LLVM. Mm -hmm. For audience that has never heard of LLVM, do you mind giving like a very broad 10,000 foot overview <laughs> of what LLVM is and why it's worth learning and why yeah, you're sure. interested in it? Yeah, I'll give you the 10,000 foot overview because I feel like the level of detail to which I understand LLVM is probably like the 5,000 foot overview. So it's great. You've asked me the perfect question. <laughs> um, so LLVM is a, uh, it sounds like VM, virtual machine, right? And it, it kind of is that, but it's also kind of a library for doing uh, code generation for any machine target that you would want. So LLVM doesn't stand for anything, I don't think, but it originally was meant to stand for low-level virtual machine. Um, so it's, it kind of has two components. One is a virtual machine, which I don't think is used very often. The other is code generating uh, from LLVM's intermediate representation. Uh, I should explain what that is, but I'll get there. <laughs> to like whatever assembly target for whatever machine that you actually want to run stuff on. Before we get yeah. further into the okay. details, I think it might be worthwhile to uh, kind of share for the audience why this is a tool worth even tr attempting to understand. Yeah, okay, so zooming out even further. So zooming out even further, LLVM is uh, a framework for uh, writing programming languages or writing compilers, I guess. I wouldn't even say it's a framework for writing uh, programming languages. You remember when I was talking about, so compilers take language A and go to language B mm -hmm. sort of thing. And then so, um, so language B, LLVM has a, implements a language B that you can compile your language A to. So A can be some like crazy, you know, functional, whatever, the next Haskell or something, like something that's got some really complicated uh, features that you want. Yeah, exactly. LLVM provides a, what they call an intermediate representation, but it's just another programming language, but it's, it's somewhere between, um, you know, like C and assembly in terms of complexity. Like it's got some features that um, assemblies don't have typically or like are a little harder to implement um, but it's also low level enough that it can easily be translated into really tightly optimized machine code so basically if you write a compiler that goes from language a to you know from your pet language to llvm then llvm has all this like really hardcore like best in industry uh, optimizations that they can apply to that intermediate representation to generate machine code that's going to run really fast so one example use case in the real world yeah. of LLVM is, I guess, the familiarity I have with it is Apple's use of it uh, as a component of their compiler of Objective-C yep. to uh, assembly uh, language code that runs iOS apps. Yeah, uh, I'm sure there are many other examples, but uh, if people need a rationale for understanding its 
value. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that it's a component that is essential to running all apps on your iPhone or iPad yeah. is a pretty reasonable argument for trying for for uh, understanding it and uh, seeing why it's valuable. I guess. Yeah, totally. Um, and I mean, if you're if you're just writing Objective C, you probably will never actually have to interact with LLVM specifically, but it can be interesting if you want to know why this piece of code is running fast or slow or something. could be interesting to take a look at what LLVM code is actually being generated from the code fragment that you're, you know, you're wondering about. So Xcode, the IDE that Apple provides for writing iOS apps, yeah. uh, I don't know how much uh, they hide LLVM under the covers <laughs> when you're writing your Objective-C in Xcode, but... Uh, uh, the guy who cr created LLVM or headed up the LLVM open source project was a University of Illinois professor. Okay. And he got hired on full-time at Apple. Mm -hmm. And then I think he left to join Tesla. Okay. And now, <laughs> all over the place. He, basically, he's been, a, uh, he's been a huge advocate for LLVM's use in the, in the, in the development of the iOS platform uh, and for running cool, yeah. native mobile apps. But... My familiarity with it is very low. This yeah. is the most intense conversation <laughs> on the show. We've gotten into a computer science theory topic. Uh, yeah. It, I feel uh, out of my depth. <laughs> I feel like I could point out one more reason why you might want to use LLVM. And again, like, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in this or anything. This is just what I've learned from, like, one class, basically. So, sure. But um, because it's backed by big industry players like Apple, and I think there's a few others even, um, you know, you get kind of a lot of like really hardcore industry optimizations and performance and, and uh, like robustness for free. So instead of trying to turn your, your next Haskell or whatever into like Intel assembly language or, you know, x, uh, x86 like assembly, um, which can be really hard because you're going from some really high level, like almost mathematical notation down to like instructions for a machine. If you use LLVM, you can get a lot of the optimizations that the big players get for free. And so that would be a reason. If you were planning to design a language, which I don't know how many of your audience members are into that, but maybe, you know, like maybe people don't even realize it's a thing they could do. Like anyone can get in and just make up a mm -hmm. programming language. Like that's, uh, that's how we got all of our programming languages actually was by and large people just making them up because they thought they should exist. And um, even if you're not setting out to create your own programming yeah. language, there are tons of jobs at places like Apple or Google or what have you where uh, these large corporations are backing programming language development or design yeah, absolutely. Uh, in order to optimize those languages that they have available for developers to develop apps on their platform in order to make them super optimized and preserve things like battery lifetime uh, yeah. for phones, uh, all kinds of levels That's of a huge detail. One, yeah. Um, That's actually one area that, because um, because Apple you know compiles all their uh, apps down to an almost machine code like level before they even send the app to your phone, um, which they can do because they know what hardware they're going to be running everything on because it's Apple, right? There's like one piece of hardware for all the, you know for everything. Um, that's one reason why like iOS apps often are better at using energy and and like can be faster and do more crazy graphic stuff than Android apps. Because Android, there's actually a VM, a Java, like virtual machine running on your Android phone all the time, like interpreting the uh, 
the like compiled version that you got off the App Store to run on your phone's hardware, which is something that like the App Store has no idea about. Doesn't know how it doesn't know how your phone's CPU works because it could be made by anyone, right? So there's a layer between yeah. the app that you get from the Android App Store and uh, what actually runs on your phone. Yeah, in a way that there isn't really that layer on iOS. So definitely, like that's a that's a thing that a lot of um, it's a reason why Android will probably never be quite as like efficient and fast as as iOS, and at least for like you know really cool applications like graphics stuff. Um, sure. At least, or at least until yeah. Android. People might know, disagree. Yeah, they might disagree, <laughs> and they might come up with some new technology that mitigates this. You know, it's totally, it's it's not like a uh, a done deal, I guess. But so to wrap, uh, is there anything that you'd like to plug in terms of uh, tools or resources that you think our audience would find valuable for? learning how to get to a point in their careers that's similar to yours, uh, job-wise, career-wise, skills-wise? Yeah, totally. Um, one thing that I would like to suggest everyone do is uh, last week I just got back from a conference called Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, it's actually the second time I've been to it. I went once you know, last year and, and then again this year. And each time it's been like a really inspiring and awesome experience. Um, just in terms of opening my eyes up to what is out there, uh, it's like it's, I learned things that I didn't even know, you know, existed, didn't even think to imagine would have existed sort oh, of thing. Sure. So it's like just a really good uh, opening up of horizons and perspectives and stuff. And even um, if you can't attend the conference in person. Yeah, you can look it up on YouTube, all the videos on YouTube, which <laughs> I recommend you do. And they, you know, they have records back for to the beginning, I think. So um, yeah. we, we actually have a video with a, another EverQuote. Uh, person Kyle Feely, director uh -huh. of user experience, who has a bunch of tips for employees to uh, provide arguments to their managers on why they should be allowed to go to conferences or yeah. why their employer should fund. Oh, cool! I should watch that because that's <laughs> <laughs> clutchy. Yeah. Well, dude, Tom, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks, Max.